Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Karen Messina. I'm a psychologist, child and adolescent, as well as an adult psychoanalyst, author, podcast host, and someone who cares a great deal about our environment. Today, I'm going to introduce two special guests, Jenny Silverstein and Elizabeth Bechard. They conducted a very important study Um, entitled, What are the Impacts of Concern About Climate Change on the Emotional Dimensions of Parents' Mental Health, a Literature Review? And that's a question that they were asking. I don't think there's much um, that has been studied about how parents are coping, maybe as individuals, but not as parents. Jenny is a licensed clinical social worker an infant family mental health specialist working at the intersection of climate justice and early childhood mental health. As a child trauma therapist in a climate disaster disrupted community, she has witnessed firsthand the impact of the climate crisis on our most vulnerable citizens, our children. She is committed to helping co-create resilient communities in which every child will be nurtured and supported through the challenges to come. Through nature-based therapy for young children with complex trauma, community resilience, and trauma-responsive education training, as well as organizational coaching in reflective communication, she seeks to promote community well-being while disrupting the system of injustice that disproportionately burdens young families. Her work is about promoting a sense of belonging for all children in their families, their communities, and with the more than human world. Informed by extensive training in the neuroscience of early childhood development, she provides strategies and relational opportunities to strengthen the connections children need in order to maximize their potential for empathy, reciprocity, and the collective cooperation required to co-create a sustainable future. Elizabeth Bechard is a senior policy analyst for Moms Clean Air Force and leads the organization's work on climate change and mental health. She is the author of Parenting in a Changing Climate, Tools for Cultivating Resilience, Taking Action, and Practicing Hope in the Face of Climate Change. Elizabeth holds a Master's of Science degree in Public Health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where her thesis research focused on climate change and parents' mental health. Before becoming uh, I guess the, the director of in charge of Moms Clean, Clean Air Force. She worked as a health coach and clinical research coordinator, 
contributing to several academic publications. Her work with Moms Clean Air Force has been featured by U.S. News and World Report, Good Morning America, Reader's Digest, Forbes, The Washington Post, RIST, WCAX, and the Charlotte Observer. Elizabeth is a member of the Early Years Climate Action Task Force and lives in Vermont with her husband and twins. So we have a lot to talk about in this very important study. Um, tell us about, uh, tell our, our listeners about how the two of you decided to research this particular topic. Either one of you. Thank you so much, uh, Karen, for having both of us. I can jump in there. Um, I know that Jenny and I have both very personally experienced the impacts of climate change on our mental health as as parents, especially parents of uh, kids who have been young over the last several years as we've been you know witnessing escalating climate threats in real time. I remember uh, my twins are seven years old now, and I remember very clearly, uh, the experience of, of really becoming acutely aware of, of climate change and what that threat uh, meant uh, when my children were about two years old, uh, one or two years old, and the uh, experience of being uh, just uh, gripped by intense emotions like anxiety, uh, dread, uh, deep grief uh, as I watched uh, climate change uh, affect my home state of North Carolina where I lived at the time. Uh, and really struggling to find anybody speaking to that emotional experience of uh, what it what it is like to be a parent who has just brought children into the world and to watch headline after headline uh, say that the the world is unraveling. Um, and so, you know, for me, you know, one of my ways of trying to respond to the intense emotions that I felt about climate change as a parent was to try to pivot my career. And so I went back to school to study public health, and I knew that at the time that I wanted to uh, try to study climate change and parents' mental health uh, for quite selfish reasons, because it was something that I wanted to, to know about and figure out how to apply in a useful way uh, to my own life. And so the the paper is um, yeah, very personal to me. Uh, can you t tell me what the paper does not cover regarding the direct impact of climate change? Yeah, sure. That's a, that's definitely an important thing to name at the outset of this conversation. It is a literature review that's looking at a very specific research question uh, that's focused on how the um, how concerned about the idea of, of climate change as a concept affect, uh, affects the emotional dimensions of parents' mental health. So what it doesn't cover is the, uh, or the mental health impacts of uh, living through a climate disaster. So that doesn't address these direct mental health impacts of things like living through wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, which, uh, you know, there's a lot of overlap, you know, for, for individuals as we, you know, more and more are experiencing these real-time impacts. So the that's a whole other area of, of study that is not addressed, um, you know, by what we're talking about here today, but that's also deeply important. Sure. Thank you. Um, I just want to add uh, that the Elizabeth, when you wrote your book, Parenting in a Changing Climate, I was, I also have a young child. My daughter's a couple years older than Elizabeth's twins. And I had been spiraling really since my pregnancy, which happened to coincide with just 
the worst drought year we had had up until then on record in Northern California. It didn't rain for pretty much the whole winter. And I remember feeling like such a sense of acute terror that um, it felt like it was bigger than me. It felt genetically encoded, like, oh my goodness, a pregnancy during a drought this bad for most of human history would not have survived. And and holding that terror, then entering parenthood with that and feeling very isolated in that experience um, until in part, I stumbled upon Elizabeth's book and it was cathartic. I, I mean, I just remember sobbing, <laughs> reading your book and recognizing that, oh, I am not the only person having these thoughts and these feelings in the sphere. And so when um, you presented me with the opportunity to um, support you in your research, I just, I had to say yes. Well, that's just very interesting. Uh, maybe you should come back, Elizabeth, and talk about your book for another podcast. <laughs> Sounds really fascinating. Uh, there was also another person, I think, who worked with you. Uh, was there a third person? I don't want to leave her name. Yes, her name is Jenny, Dr. Jenny Walk. Uh, she was my thesis advisor, and she was uh, a great support as well. So I think you might have already answered why this research is important to you, Jenny, but if there's anything you want to add, um, maybe... Yeah, I think that that is my answer. And just really the most important thing for me is the sense of validation that I get in reading through the literature review and that I really want to get that message out there to as many parents as possible that um, these emotional experiences are to be expected for parenting in this time and place. Yes, it's an excellent literature review. Now we need some studies, right? <laughs> uh, more studies. Uh, let's see, one of the key themes in the paper is the idea that parents ex experience moral injury in relation to climate change. Can you talk a little bit about that? I imagine some people aren't aware, probably many people aren't aware of what moral injury might mean. Absolutely. So moral injury is this idea of psychological harm that results from you know, witnessing or being forced to partake in activities that violate your core sense of moral values or beliefs, or maybe uh, an injury, a moral injury that results from being betrayed by a trusted authority. I remember the, the first place that I encountered this term moral injury in the context of the climate crisis was in a paper that was published in The Lancet, uh, I believe in 2021. There was a, a study by Hickman et al. that looked at uh, young people's mental health uh, in a survey of 10,000 young people around the world. And one of the ideas that emerged in that paper was that young people are experiencing moral injury as they watch governments utterly fail to meet the moment and to act uh, you know, on climate change in a way that protects their future. And as I was you know, looking through the early iterations of this, this uh, data set, you know, the papers that were included in this literature review, it became really clear that parents are experiencing dimensions of moral injury as well. Um, you know, parents are morally and ethically obligated to care for and protect our children. I think there's nothing, you know, that any parent wants to do more than to make sure that our children are, are safe and protected and climate change is increasingly directly interfering with the sort of fundamental parental um, duty in ways that are uh, excruciatingly painful for many parents. And 
some of the specific ways that might show up are, you know, that many parents are are deeply frightened about the future and, you know, what uh, the 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 world that our children are are inheriting and future generations uh, are inheriting will look like. And it's important to name uh, that, you know, for many communities, this is not, you know, the threat of a, an uncertain future is not new. Communities that have faced, you know, colonization and genocide and, and slavery have faced existential threats many times, but there's something about this threat of, of climate change that uh, seems excruciatingly painful for many parents. Many parents are unwillingly complicit in systems of harm. And so, uh, you know, fossil fuels make modern life possible for nearly all of us. You know, probably all of us are you know, listening to this podcast on, you know, devices that, you know, use lots of fossil fuels to bring them into our homes. And, you know, the more that we're aware of how harmful that fossil fuel infrastructure that makes just everyday family life possible, uh, and that makes it possible for us to fulfill the social expectations of parenthood, of which there are many, um, that tension is very painful to hold. Um, you know, many parents find just the, the tasks of parenting in a changing climate quite difficult. And this can include things like uh, having difficult conversations with our kids about climate change. You know, many parents struggle with how and when to have those conversations and how to do it in a way that doesn't brighten our children or, or you know, tell them too soon or too late. So there's really, the, you know, this delicate dance that many parents are, are navigating around how to have these conversations. Um, there's this theme of cognitive dissonance that emerged where parents, uh, you know, are on the one hand kind of expected to maintain a peaceful daily routine and, you know, to present, you know, this facade of life carrying on as normal for our kids so that they can, you know, thrive and have the stability and routine that, you know, we're told that kids need. And, and yet we're also expected to prepare for the apocalypse at the same time, or at the very least, the next hurricane or the next, you know, wildfire, etc. Um, climate change is one of many frightening risks that parents are facing. So this was a really striking finding in the literature that um, parents aren't just worried about climate change. We're also worried about gun violence and systemic racism and economic and political instability and COVID. And many parents have children with unique individual special needs. And so um, you know, contextually, parents are dealing with a lot and are already uh, extremely overburdened to begin with. And then you add this frightening uh, climate threat on top of that, and it's really a lot to hold. Um, parents are also worried about governments failing to act. I mean, I know that's top of mind for me a lot of the time. I'm angry about that as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, one final dimension of the moral injury theme that came up was that, yeah, you know, parents have concerns about the ethics of reproduction reproduction as well. And um, in one paper, a small set of uh, parents reported even feeling regret about having children, which to me is just a, a heartbreaking thing to hear about. Yeah. And I have a question for Jenny, but I, I just want to mention the first time that I I read or learned about the study with 10,000 children around the world, I was amazed at the number of kids who were really upset about this. So in, in your at paper, 71% reported a belief that uh, climate change will harm the future generations. I mean, kids are really tuned into this. 59% uh, very extremely worried about 
climate change. Uh, 45 reported their feelings about climate change negatively, how it negatively affects their everyday lives. So kids are definitely tuned into this, whether people are aware of that or not. So Jenny, my question for you is distancing strategies um, to cope with climate distress. What kinds of distancing strategies are um, useful? Ah, well, that is a great question because there's lots of distancing strategies and not all of them are either um, conscious or useful. And so, you know, we... (laughs) <laughs> um we we live frankly in a in a very addictive culture for all of these reasons because so many of these stressors are um so hard to navigate and so much not validated in the world around us and so then there's all kinds of escapisms that um we use without thinking and that can become addictive and the top of my list of concerns are um using consumption in that way because of course that feeds the climate crisis when we are um, overly consuming, you know, purchasing things we don't really need and um, food we throw away and all that kind of stuff. And um, and then, you know, the addictive use of screens um, to escape from our reality is a huge issue in families and with the attentive the attention parents are able to give children in the relationships that are happening in the home and community. And um, the reason I mentioned those two beyond anything else is because they are so normalized and socially expected in our culture that we have to actually remind ourselves that they might not be very healthy choices. Um, but there are also distancing strategies that are really protective. Um, And I sometimes think of that as like healthy forms of dissociation, like reading a good fiction novel um, is a wonderful way to escape. Reading a great fiction novel out loud to your child is a great way to escape and have wonderful connecting family time. Um, And then, you know, things like just turning off the news, you know, limiting how much um, of that kind of negative information we take in in any given moment is another, I think, self-protective choice that people can make that is also distancing. Um, Those are the top ones that come to my mind. So those are very important. Yeah. Uh, just a brief note about screens. I, I'm I'm writing a book with um, a psychiatrist who has a PhD in neuroscience, and he's doing the neuroscience part, and I'm doing the psychoanalytic part. But it is amazing what just putting a baby in front of a screen or a child, and what that does to brain development. It, it's just it's just really astounding. So when I saw that you'd studied. Um, neuroscience of child development. I was really excited about that. It's exciting, but it's also um, a painful moment to be conscious of that because I actually just uh, gave a presentation on early childhood mental health and uh, the climate crisis resilience. And this came up in the context of parenting in that uh, my argument is always to get kids outside as much as possible. And one of the people listening to my lecture said, well, but these very young parents that I have, that I have contact with now, they're on their screens all the time. They're a generation that was raised. But now we're starting to see the second generation effects of this. And um, I think it's, it, it is con- definitely concerning to me to watch that. So 
One one thing I'll just add too, you know, to sort of tie back to the theme of of moral injury around the screen thing is, you know, just to point to my own experience, you know, from this past summer as one example is here in Vermont where I live, we had multiple episodes of of wildfire smoke. And Jenny, I know in California that's something that you're even more familiar with, but there were a number of days when I might have wanted to have my kids go outside and play, but the air was not safe to breathe quite literally. And so, uh, you know, climate change means more and more days for parents when, you know, this ideal of going outside is quite literally not safe for our our children. And that the pain of knowing that screens are that ideal and yet literally having no other option uh, is, you know, again, one of, one of the places where something like this experience of moral injury might show up in the day-to-day experience of parenting. And so I always encourage just deep compassion for parents who are holding that tension because it's, it's excruciating. Yeah. And I, I just, um, going back to moral injury for a minute, I just really, the, of those dimensions, the one that I struggle with the most and hear the most from other parents is this being unwillingly complicit. Um, like it's, it's hard enough as an individual to navigate. We cannot avoid being part of these systems, we cannot avoid consuming fossil fuels. And then your child comes along and that just gets exponentially amplified. Um, I drive more than I ever, I fly. My kid has flown honestly more in her short life than I did ever before she was born because all of her grandparents live flying distance away from us. And if I could have told my 20 year old self, don't go so far away from your parents, you're going to regret it when, when they're grandparents one day. But that decision has long since been made. And every time I just put her on an airplane, you know, it's like, well, she needs to see her grandparents, but we're contributing to this problem. And there just is no way to make peace with that. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, one theme that I think is interesting in the paper is it talks about or describes Uh, how for some parents, climate change may be a catalyst for learning and personal growth. Can one of you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought this was a really interesting theme as well, because the majority of the papers, it just use words of painful emotions to describe, you know, the experience that, that parents are having. But there does seem to be this smaller subset of parents for whom really facing the uh, the reality of climate change and really embracing you know these uh, painful emotions that we experience can have uh, something of a transformative effect um, and can help uh, you know parents sort of move through you know deep experiences of, of grief and and pain and seek meaning through things like climate action through, you know, being in community with others who who deeply care. Um, one of the places that this showed up in the literature was in a few studies on parent climate activists in the United Kingdom, um, who, you know, in these qualitative surveys, of course, described emotions of, of deep pain and distress related to climate change, but they also described emotions of, of hope and solidarity uh, and meaning and connecting with others and, uh, and described uh, even the sense of everyday moments of connection with our children feeling more precious because of the awareness of uh, how so much of what we're experiencing today may be fleeting. You know, like the moments in nature uh, can be more precious with an awareness of, of climate change. And um, so I thought that was 
important to to name that it's you know it's not all doom and gloom there's plenty of doom and gloom <laughs> to go around but for for some parents it it does seem like this really this experience of really leaning into the full you know emotional weight uh, of climate change with the support of others uh, can allow um, positive emotions to emerge as well. There, there's a concept in the paper, and I think maybe something that some people think, and that is that if somebody's anxious, moving to action is the best way to go, and yet it may not be. Uh, it may be to do something else. Would one of you want to address that that idea? Um. Well, well, one thing I think about, and Elizabeth and I have talked about this quite a bit outside of writing the paper, is there we live in a very individually focused culture. Very individual solutions are we're constantly told that that's what we should be doing, and in the context of parenting and climate change, one of the ways that this can be interpreted is um, I can take all these individual little actions and not that each of those things aren't of value. They have a certain inherent value. The more of us that do them, the better, but um, we can get, it can actually increase our anxiety uh, to feel like I have to be doing all of these things to protect my child and the world that my child's going to live in. And so I'm, I'm not going to eat meat and I'm only going to buy from there and I'm not going to buy from Amazon ever. And I'm only going to, you know, get things that aren't plastic. And um, I think I've shared this example with you before Elizabeth, but I had this like, um, crescendo moment around this. It's sometimes referred to green mothering. It's like, how can we be the most, the most environmentally conscious and, and keep, you know, all the poisons away from our children um, as possible, which as an individual is not realistic. And I remember during early COVID when uh, shopping was still scary, you know, that was where you had the most contact with other people during shelter in place and, uh, and the bulk bins were shut down. And uh, so I couldn't buy in bulk, which is what I, typically would do. And I remember literally it felt like at least an hour passed staring at a supermarket shelf going, do I buy the local product? That means there was less fossil fuels to get it to me, but it's wrapped in a lot of plastic. Or do I buy the one that has more cardboard, but it came from further away. And I was just frozen, like unable (laughs) to act at all. And so those types of actions, um, unfortunately, can really feed and spiral anxiety. And so that's why we start talking about collective action as really being more of a balm, more of a way that we can soothe our own emotional response as well as feel more efficacy. Because when we work with other people, first of all, we get our needs for community met and our needs for validation met. And it really genuinely is much more empowering. I think that's an important thought applied to the climate crisis because it's an important thought with therapy in general mm-hmm. that tolerating anxiety and difficult emotions is often uh, the best way to go while you think and process what's going on versus just rushing to action. I think there is a tendency for people to just do something to make it better, but doing something, just anything, uh, that's not necessarily the answer. So I think it applies well here too. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about the need to both take collective action, but also to sit with our emotions that are painful. I think we often see the phrase, you know, move from anxiety to action. And and a lot of a lot of events use that phrase. And I totally understand the appeal of it because there's definitely a part of me that would like to, a one-way ticket from anxiety to action. 
as well. Um, and to just, you know, not have to, you know, just, just be engaged and having fun with other climate activists and not have to feel the anxiety piece. Um, but I think to your point, point Karen, uh, you know, it's my experience as I've sort of grown uh, in my own, you know, climate journey, if you will, has been um, not that I don't experience anxiety. Uh, I experience anxiety, grief, dread, all the feels on a regular basis, but I have increased my ability to tolerate them and to engage in meaningful action as well. Um, and so I, I think we this framing of moving from anxiety to action sets up kind of a false binary that's not necessarily useful or realistic for most people that there's a way out of painful climate emotions when um, my experience has been that there's there's not a way out, yeah. more of a way in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That just, it makes me want to add one more thing, which is oh. um, we often talk in therapy about growth being in spirals. Like you get back to where you started, but from this new place with this new vantage point where you have more information and, and awareness. And um, I really feel that way about climate anxiety, that the, the more we uh, can tolerate this information and this awareness, the more we learn. And then all of a sudden we reach the point where we're outside our window of tolerance again and get flooded by those um, emotions again. And then we have to build our capacity to tolerate and just kind of take that next step out. And that it's, it's an ongoing process probably for the rest of our lives. I like that model though, that just you come back to you building more resources and then working with that until the next wave comes. But you have a process in mind at that point. Uh, the paper, moving to something a little bit different, the paper references research suggesting that there may be unique vulnerabilities for the perinatal period in terms of climate change and mental health. Can one of you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I... um. I do a lot of work with people in the transition into parenthood. And to begin with, it's a super vulnerable time, right? So I always think of young children as being among the most vulnerable in any community, but new parents are really vulnerable. It is a really sensitive moment. There's so many biophysical, neurological, psychosocial changes that are happening really rapidly. Um, even under the best possible circumstances, postpartum is a roller coaster and you're not sleeping. So um, and so it is a vulnerable time to begin with. And then when that intersects with um, climate consciousness, um, climate awareness, one thing that can happen is when our when we have babies, we get this really visceral sense of an elongated future that suddenly it's not just my own lifetime that I can imagine to the end of, but my child's and maybe even my grandchildren's. We get this much bigger sense of um and really a a very personal attachment to wanting to see a healthy, long future. And right at that same moment, we have less agency than ever before. 
because we have less time, we have less money, we have more responsibilities. Many of us are more isolated, less support. Um, and that those two things can really collide in a way that um, can be, uh, can certainly contribute to uh, perinatal mood disorders. And when people already have, you know, those stressors and vulnerabilities, um, adding this piece in can really impact functioning. What about potential modifying factors. Are you talking about that here or are there other potential modifying factors that you'd like to address? Yeah, there's a number of factors that showed up in the literature that uh, may moderate parents' experience of of how climate change is affecting their mental health. Um, uh, Gender is certainly one of them. You know, there's a fairly solid, but, you know, still uh, solidifying body of research showing that women seem to be more concerned about climate change than than men. And then, of course, uh, you know, women uh, tend to shoulder more of the child uh, rearing duties. Um, you know, one thing that's not addressed in the literature that that's a real limitation is that, you know, none of the papers identify the or named the experiences of, of LGBTQ parents who may not identify with these gendered labels of mother and father. So that's important to note as well. Um, race and ethnicity emerged as a, a an important modifying factor. We know that uh, people of color tend to be more worried about climate change, especially uh, Latino individuals. There's uh, you know more and more research showing that, and um, that likely has a lot to do with the fact that communities of color are hit first and worst by climate disasters. They are quite literally on the front lines, and so these you know mental health impacts of climate change are not distributed evenly. You know as are you know you know none of the impacts of climate change are distributed evenly. Um, Jenny, I don't know if you want to jump in here with more as well. Um, Well, I just, I think the thing I really wanted to add is um, when I see the words modifying factors, I mean, they are completely the appropriate words in the context of this literature review and any academic study. And, um, but I, I also just want to be conscious that we don't kind of glaze over what that really means in terms of the experience of um, intersectional injustice and how our range of privilege and marginalization can really impact someone's experience, um, both of uh, emotional dimensions of climate anxiety and also our experiences in dealing with climate disasters. And um, just for a quick kind of personal example of this, I, uh, I was just thinking today about how when the Kincaid fire hit um, my county, Sonoma County, uh, it was already a really large fire before the wind event that brought it towards town. So uh, more than half of the county was in danger from this fire and 250,000 people were under mandatory evacuation orders. And we evacuated to California's central coast. And um, on the day that it really, the really big firefight, Uh, We took our daughter to the Santa Cruz Boardwalk, which is like a beach amusement park, um, because we wanted to have something for her to do besides just be staring at us while we were worried and a way to distract ourselves. And, um, you know, this totally surreal experience of trying to play and have fun with her, speaking of cognitive dissonance, right, trying to play and have fun with her while checking my phone regularly to see if my home and my community still existed. And, um, And so that was our experience. And it was a terrible, I mean, it was very incredibly hard. And also there were whole swaths of my community who could not 
drive in their car to the central coast and get a hotel. That was not even an option. They were staying in, you know, public shelters where the air quality was 500 plus, you know, out right outside the door. And it was harvest season. And um, Sonoma County's uh, economy is completely dependent on wine. So as soon as there was any barrier against the fire at all, um, the uh, farm workers were trucked back in behind the evacuation lines so they could stand in that smoke and pick the grapes. And so that parents experience of this event. I mean, it just, there's no comparison between mine and theirs, even though it was the same event. Um, And so when I think about modifying factors, I'm like, okay, let's get to like, what does this mean, you know, for the people who are actually experiencing these things? So yeah, that's a very good example. I'm glad you brought that up because there are two different experiences of the same event, totally different. So I guess some of that might apply to the disaster in Hawaii as well. Um, but uh, I guess that's a topic for another day, but, but along the same the same lines, maybe. Yeah. Um, there's a quote in the paper that stands out, and, I, and I'd like to read it. It's short. Supporting parents in embracing a broader existential perspective on climate change may mean moving past offering standardized advice on coping with eco-anxiety and providing greater access to spaces in which parents can wrestle meaningfully with the deeper questions climate change asks of us. Thoughts about that? Um, I want to jump in here because I think this is this is something, Elizabeth, and I, I, I know that we both feel really strongly about this. And um, I want to just start by offering, like taking a step back and offering a broader context for this quote, which Elizabeth, you started to allude to earlier that um, we just, we live in a culture where the expectations placed on parents are so vastly out of proportion for the amount of support that we actually receive in the role. It's um, just, again, going to that transition to early parenthood, right? Right from the beginning, um, we still don't have guaranteed paid parental leave in the United States, which we are the only wealthy country that can't manage to (laughs) offer that to its citizens. At the same time, there is um, not enough childcare slots available and particularly infant care slots and particularly slots that are affordable to um, most working parents. And so that's impossible. And that's like right out the gate, you're faced with this impossible dilemma and this lack of social support for um, your parenting and your family. And then um, Elizabeth, you mentioned a few of the other ways that this just shows up constantly, right? Whether it's guns in schools or plastics in our water or you know air pollution from living near a, a fossil fuel factory, it's we're constantly being put in this position where we are. Um, the demand is that we basically place like our bodies and the strength of our wills between our children and this world that doesn't seem to care very much about their well-being, and we make it all better. And <laughs> that is when we become overwhelmed, inevitably distressed by our inability to do the completely impossible, um, then the messaging is, oh, well, too bad you're a parent, you know, get it, get yourself together and, and get back to work. And so the emotional support for this reality is just absent for so many, for people who aren't lucky enough to have the kind of friendship that, that I have with you, for example, Elizabeth, you know, it's just missing. And, um, 
And so my, and then parents feel enormous guilt, you know, when they um, can't manage to navigate all of this successfully. Um, and so my concern is when there is, um, when there are resources that are giving advice um, without first really providing that emotional support for these really valid feelings and experiences that as well-meaning as and well-intended as they may be, that they're actually playing into this dominant narrative that just um, creates an impossible double bind for parents. And Jenny, I'm I'm cheering over here, uh, you know, in solidarity and <clears throat> excuse me with what you're saying. You know, I think a moment that comes to mind for my own parenting journey is like early on, you know, just in the depths of despair about this, trying to find any other parent that I could talk to about how I was feeling and getting just every time I would try to bring this up in conversations with people, I would just get these looks like you're not going to go there. Right. Like, and, and people were unable to go there with me in my early uh, experience of parenting. And I remember feeling very alone, although I could find some articles online on how to help your kid manage their climate anxiety. Right. And so we are expecting parents to be able to help our kids cope with this existential dilemma without having support ourselves to process our own emotions. And, and thankfully that's starting to change, um, you know, as more and more people are, are, are talking about it, uh, you know, more and more of us can find, you know, friends like, like you, Jenny, to, to really have these meaningful conversations with, and there's more and more, you know, gr groups being offered for parents, but they are not yet widely accessible. And so, you know, a parent who um, feels that they have to add to their uh, to-do list, like mastering how to talk to their kids about climate change and being the perfect climate parent, without the support that they need to process their emotions, um, you know, that's that's too much to ask of parents. So this is a very, I guess we could spend quite a bit of time talking about this. This paper, this literature review is wonderful. What's missing from research on climate change and parental mental health? We've settled, there's a lot, but specific things? Yeah, you know, there's uh, a few things that I think we've named. Um, one is that, you know, none of the papers uh, acknowledge the experience uh, experiences of parents who might not identify with these gendered labels of, of mother and uh, mothers and fathers. And so um, that's certainly a, a significant omission from the research. Um, it was striking that almost all of the papers were published in, you know, Western industrialized countries, um, you know, like the United States and, and the United Kingdom and Australia, and, you know, many of them had, you know, data sets that lacked, you know, racial and ethnic diversity. Um, so that's certainly, you know, a very important gap. We need, uh, you know, more research that's representative of the actual population. Um, and we also need, you know, more evidence-based strategies on what is going to help parents meaningfully cope with this. You know, there's a, there's a growing body of anecdotal evidence from fields like climate psychology that's really helping us to understand what might help, but very little in academic literature uh, about this. And so that's something that would be a really useful addition to the field as well. Um, maybe you can both talk about hope. Uh, that parents will have access to the support they need to process and navigate their own emotions about climate change as they work with their children and their emotions about these things. Some people are very, there are people who are hopeful 
Um, I did a, a podcast with Heather White, who is big on resiliency, and she's very hopeful. And then, of course, there are the deep adaptations to think that, uh, well, it's too late, but we're not operating on that premise. So in terms of hope, what thoughts do you have? Well, one thing that is bubbling up for me a lot is I'm seeing just more and more, um, not just conversation, but action in terms of community resilience. California, for example, right now has uh, some grant funding they're initiating for uh, community resilience hubs to be created. And uh, so the opportunity, the thing that gives me the most hope is that we can um, move outside of these kind of very individualized ways of thinking and and being in our nuclear family units and um, get the whole community together to, um, first of all, strengthen our own connections and our own support, and then be able to offer that to our children. And so I, you know, the idea of just everyone getting together and having a meal, you know, when knowing who your neighbors are and making sure that, you know, they're prepared for emergencies too. And, um, and, and then both being able to have conversations with with people like you guys about these things, but also just taking like speaking again about actions that reduce anxiety, like um, just checking in on my neighbors um, and helping be one of the people who builds that that relationship uh, gives me hope. I think that's so important, this community building. People feel so isolated, but whether it's organizing a drive to clean up cans or well, I guess you could start with just having a barbecue with everybody in the neighborhood, but, but doing some project I think would be very useful. And people do feel connected, obviously, when they feel like they belong to a community. So I guess that's an expansion or, or just a little bit of added whatever um, in terms of what you just said. I think that's a key. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, my my own relationship with the word hope is one that probably changes on a daily basis. But, you know, if there is anything that gives me um, hope it really is acting with others and you know I'm I'm a full-time climate activist now and you know I work every day with people who are devoting their whole professional lives to to acting on this and I, I didn't have that perspective before and so you know when you're really engaged in working on you know whatever small you know slice of the issue is yours to to work on with other people it really does change your your perspective and uh, give you a chance to um, yeah, find meaning and, and purpose and solidarity with others in a way that I don't think is possible without acting with others. Well, I feel more hopeful just listening to the two of you. Um, do you have anything else that you might like to add to the discussion from either your book, Elizabeth, or the study? There's a lot in it, for sure. You know, I would just add that I, I hope that, that if there are any parents listening who have felt isolated in, you know, their concern about climate change, you know, that they will find someone to talk to, you know, find whether it's a friend or uh, a climate cafe, more and more climate cafes are emerging as spaces where people can show up and talk about uh, climate emotions in a safe space or groups like the Good Grief Network, you know, acting with other people and just talking and being with others who care is so uh, critical. And I would just encourage that for anyone listening. 
Michelle, could one of you explain what a um, climate cafe is? Some listeners may not be familiar with that term. I can I can do that because then I had my my own addition to add. So uh, a climate cafe, it actually came out of a, a British model, what they would call death cafes, which were people, it was fairly informal, but lightly facilitated and people would come and get together and drink tea and uh, talk about uh, their experience with death and grief. And so the climate cafe's model was built out of that and has really gained so much traction recently here in the United States. There's even some funding coming down around it, I've heard recently. So um, really expanding. And it is... um, being offered on college campuses and um, in all sorts of communities and on Zoom and just a chance for people to talk to other people who are feeling similarly. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to add is um, because like finding that balance between like, how do we get our own support as parents when many of us have very little time. Um, It's always an issue, particularly for, you know, working parents and parents of really young children. It's like, you know, can I get five minutes to even, you know, have this conversation with a friend? And um, so one of my favorite ways to kind of weave all of this together is to find like collective stewardship actions that involve my child. And uh, so for example, there's an organization, Russian River Keepers, and we go out with them and we pick up litter um, around the river, or uh, we've done, you know, tree plantings with various organizations, just anything like that, where um, we're, we're taking the type of action that a young child can take. And they don't have to know all the reasons why just, you know, litter is, terrible and we want to pick it up. And, um, but with a group of people who care just as much as we do. So really reinforcing, you know, for our children from the very beginning, like we are not alone in this and there's just wonderful actions that, you know, you can take with a young child that get you connected and, um, get them participating too. And as I understand it, if I'm correct about this, people can just drop into climate cafes. Is that correct? don't necessarily have to commit for a long period of time in some of them. Is that? Yeah. Many of them are just one time um, and drop in. Yeah. So that's great. So I guess people could find out about that on the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America website, correct? That is definitely one place to look. Yeah. Um, and, and the Good Grief Network's offerings are also wonderful. Climate Mental Health Network often lists quite a few resources like climate cafes too. Well, I think it's been a very good conversation and I hope we could have others. Um, I'd love to talk about your book sometime, Elizabeth. And anything else you would like to talk about, Jenny, as well. Um, I'll make sure the link is posted for the study on the new uh, Books Network website. So thank you very much, and I hope we talk again.